Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin, and today we're discussing the Great Acceleration. The Great Acceleration is a term that's been around for a while, and it describes the incredible rate of progress we've experienced since the middle of the 20th century. When you look at things like GDP, energy usage, water production, food production, information created, all of these metrics go exponentially higher since the middle of the 20th century, and they continue to this day. However, there have been some skeptics. So in 2019 and before then, you had people like Peter Thiel and Brett Weinstein talk about how maybe we've actually stagnated. Maybe the great acceleration is starting to taper off. And they even referred to the recent period of the 2010s up to 2019 as the great stagnation. And this is pretty worrying. And the way they describe it is it's sort of like we had the Star Trek supercomputer, but we didn't have any of the other Star Trek technology, right? We couldn't teleport. We can't heal people easily. We didn't have any major discoveries in the field of physics, for instance, since quantum mechanics, which was quite a long time ago. And so there was this sense that maybe we were stagnating as a society and as a civilization, and we were in need of a sort of a reboot and a kickstart that would bring about real progress and real breakthroughs and create a real paradigm shift. That has happened in 2020. COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown and everything associated with that change has brought about a fundamental shift in the direction in which civilization is going. And now even Peter Thiel is looking optimistically about the future. So Peter Thiel recently just said, quote, COVID marks the 21st century's true start. And he also says, quote, this is the year in which the new economy is actually replacing the old economy. So in other words, before 2020, people would go online, they'd go on the internet. But after 2020, we now live in the internet. Every business that was brick and mortar, yes, it may still be brick and mortar, but Post 2020, it cannot survive without a strong online component. And pretty much every business, the whole way our civilization is structured, is going to shift dramatically in the next 5, 10, 20 years. So in this episode, I want to lay the groundwork for what sort of progress we can hope to achieve in the next 5, 10, 20 years and how we might bring about a better reality for many people and also the perils of what could go wrong What's the worst case of what could happen as this great acceleration continues? And what's the best case? And what is the most likely scenario? Let's start with a few examples of how we've shifted from being on the internet before 2020 to being in the internet post-2020. So one example is restaurants. Restaurants have always been around. They are a mainstay of any economy. And before 2020, you had some restaurants doing just great without any sort of online presence. If you had a good location, you're right by office buildings where people frequent, you could run a great business without really having much of an online strategy. That has totally changed post-2020. Now we see the rise of things like cloud kitchens where you can produce food from wherever, you know, people's different chefs where they live, almost like remote work for chefs, and then you just deliver it to people or you have some inexpensive place that's not in a great real estate location, but you have a really robust delivery system. So it's really easy for anyone to order within a 10, 15 mile radius. And that way you keep your costs low, you keep your profit margins high, and it's just a much more efficient business. 
the same sort of thing happened with Amazon where you went from brick and mortar Barnes and Nobles type bookstores to then Amazon gobbling all of that up and creating an online bookstore to now you see Amazon reintroduce real physical bookstores that nevertheless are totally anchored to the online component. So it's fundamentally shifting from the focus being in the real world, brick and mortar, to now you can still be in the real world, but it has to be anchored in the digital world. Another example is that money is now shifting from centralized control by countries and government institutions like the Federal Reserve to now a decentralized system based on the blockchain, based on Bitcoin, based on Ethereum. And this is huge. This means that there is no longer going to be centralized control over the monetary system. And instead, it will be a much more robust decentralized system. So we can get into that more later in the episode. A similar shift is also happening in the information media landscape. So we shifted from centralized media organizations that were essentially the gatekeepers of information to now we're seeing the rise of substacks where you may follow all of these individual journalists and podcasters and creators that you find valuable and that you have trust in rather than just going to the CNNs, the Foxes, some abstract institution that you trust more so than individual people. So that is a major shift. And if you ever watch cable news nowadays, you'll probably notice that a lot of what they report on is what happens on the internet. Every news segment now seems like it's quoting what happened on Twitter. Oh, this person tweeted this, that person tweeted that. Or they'll share phone videos that people took of some protest or some sort of event that they shared on social media. So now the news media, the traditional media, is downstream of what's happening on social media, on digital media. So that is a fundamental shift that hadn't really been the case in the past. The education system is also getting majorly disrupted where it may no longer make sense to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a certification from a traditional university when you could either get an online degree from the same university or you could go to a non-traditional education organization like Lambda School where they have in uh, income share agreements or the On Deck Fellowship where you can get that same sort of mentorship and alumni style community that you would get from university but at a fraction of the cost and without being totally saddled with debt and also, it's more adaptable to what is actually useful in the modern day. It doesn't take 20, 50 years to change the curriculum. It's always changing and it's becoming more like a feedback system where depending on what the economy needs, the education system is shifting to deliver. Travel is also changing. Businesses no longer find it worthwhile to pay all this money to fly their salespeople for meetings in Chicago and New York and wherever else around the world. Instead, people just do Zoom meetings now. So work is becoming more asynchronous. You can hire people from all over the globe. They can collaborate together. And this is a flattening of the competitive landscape where it's now, just, it's now much easier for people in the collective to collaborate with one another. And it's much less important where you are geographically. So those were all examples of disintermediation, where you're taking the traditional gatekeepers of information or certifications or power or reach and you're removing them so now you can go direct go direct to your customers go direct to your fans go direct to your partners 
and this is definitely a major trend. I also want to talk about some straight up technological breakthroughs that we've experienced recently, and that will give you a taste of what we might experience in the next 5, 10, 20 years. So one is definitely space travel. Before SpaceX, we had hit a sort of great stagnation where we hadn't even been to the moon since we went there. And that's pretty embarrassing to an extent that we could have, we were pretty much ready to go to Mars right after we landed by, by the moon and we still have not gone to Mars. And it's been decades since then. So the fact that SpaceX now has revitalized the space exploration ecosystem is incredibly important. And the reason why it's so important is because it provides an endless frontier for humanity to strive towards. And I think that is so important for the psychology of our civilization because there's limited resources on Earth. There's only so many people that our planet can support, even with all of the breakthroughs in energy efficiency and climate science. So for us to be able to strive towards colonizing other planets and going all around the stars and doing these incredible things in outer space, that is very important for the directionality of our civilization. Another major thing that Elon and the team are doing is Starlink. Starlink is going to provide free internet access to everyone around the world. It's hard to express how important this is also, because up until now, you've been beholden to your ISP, your internet service provider, and it's pretty much a monopoly. So where I live, the only option for where to get internet is Time Warner Cable or Spectrum, which is just an awful organization. I don't think I know anyone who really loves Time Warner Cable or, or Spectrum. And also governments use that as a way to control the flow of information. So famously, there's the Great Chinese Firewall, which prevents information from being accessed by people in their network. So for instance, you cannot search Tiananmen Square or you just won't get any results if you search for Tiananmen Square in China. So to be able to access the internet, no matter where you are in the world, without being beholden to the government that you happen to live within or any sort of major company that might have a monopoly there is a major step towards progress for our entire human civilization. And then obviously the stuff he's doing with Tesla and energy storage, batteries, efficiency, autonomous driving, these are all force multipliers that are just going to have tremendous ripple effects for the future of our society. One of the other biggest force multipliers is reversing aging. And we are now much closer than you might think in achieving the ability to reverse aging. So you might have seen I had an episode with Professor David Sinclair, who's a Harvard researcher, one of the foremost researchers on the study of aging. And they have already proven they can reverse aging in mice, meaning with a three-day treatment, they can take an old mouse that has symptoms of dementia and doesn't have good reflexes and has other sort of age-related issues, and they can make it perform tasks as well as a young mouse. So that is incredible. And we haven't gotten to the stage where it's at human trials and accessible for humans, but I believe we will get there. And the reason this is such an important force multiplier is because all technology is really about extending longevity and becoming immortal. This is something Balaji Srinivasan talks about, where when you think about what technology is, you're like, you know, let's say even in a very primitive sense, 
I need to plant some crops in a farm. You know, I could dig with my hands, but that would take a long time. I'd break my fingernails. It wouldn't be very pleasant or efficient. Or I could have a hoe and that would be better. Even better would be a automated tractor that could do all of the all of these tasks for me. And the reason why that's valuable is because now I no longer have to expend time, which is our most valuable resource, doing this task. Instead, I can save my time for something else. So the ultimate technology is one where we are no longer limited by time. So you can just do whatever you decide to do, whatever's important to you at any given time, and you no longer have to take into account how much is this going to take away from the limited time I have here on Earth. The other reason this is absolutely a fundamental paradigm shift, if we are able to achieve it, is that this is the reason why people get a lot of diseases. So there's so much talk about, oh, if we could just cure cancer. But research shows that even if we cured every form of cancer, it would only extend the average lifespan of a person by a few years. Because when you're old, you are more susceptible to diseases. So even if you don't get cancer, you'll probably get some other disease. You'll get heart disease or something else. But if, you can able, if you're able to reverse aging, then that would prevent the likelihood of you getting any sort of disease. So it really is a way for us to extend longevity across all dimensions rather than what has traditionally happened where you just try to tackle this disease or that disease. So I think this is just one of the, one of the major breakthroughs that we will achieve in the next, hopefully the next 50 to 100 years or less. Another related area of progress is biology. So obviously, since COVID started, there has been a major global effort to create vaccines for the coronavirus. And whereas our previous record was something like 10 years, in under a year, we were able to develop two vaccines, one from Pfizer, one from Moderna, with 90 to 95% efficacy. So this is pretty incredible. But what's even more incredible is that we now have discovered a way to potentially create all types of vaccines using mRNA, which is the messenger RNA that basically has a copy of the DNA's code. And so by using that, we could tackle all different types of illnesses that you would need a vaccine for. I just read yesterday that they are now in the clinical trial phase of a malaria vaccine. Malaria is one of the deadliest diseases on the planet. It kills half a million people per year. So the fact that we've developed vaccines for coronavirus, we're now developing one for uh, malaria, and we're also working on anti-aging, I am just super optimistic about all that we are going to achieve in the biology and health space in the next 10, 20, 50 years. And then lastly, there's a lot of change that's going on in the energy sector. So there is definitely a move away from coal and fossil fuels. And especially now with the Biden administration that actually is willing to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, it seems like we may actually achieve progress in the sphere of climate science and renewable energy. There's a lot of interesting startups working on nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, also decarbonization. And America may be one of the leading countries for this if we play our cards right. So this is another area to keep an eye on that I think will be a tremendous area of growth and opportunity in the coming years.
Now I want to talk about the meta level of what is going on and how the whole cybernetic collective is shifting over time. And oftentimes it's, you know, we think about things in the physical world where there's all of these people and they interact in certain ways, there's countries, but it's even more accurate, I think, to think about the cybernetic collective, meaning how are the nodes on the network collected? Who do you talk to? Who are the five people you talk to most? And who are the five people they talk to most? And how does this web of all of the human beings and all of the machines we interact with and all the forces of nature, how does it all fit together? And how is that cybernetic collective changing over time due to the great acceleration? So I like to think of the cybernetic collective as this giant glowing orb of energy. And it's always growing, right? Because there's more people being born. There's more ideas being had. There's more nodes being connected. There's more information streams being added. And it's also constantly reshuffling itself and reorganizing itself. So different nodes connect to one another, different algorithms figure out how best to connect all the nodes. And it's constantly improving the way that it's structured. And so traditionally, you can imagine there's this giant orb of the collective, and then there's you, and you have these streams of information from the collective to yourself. So your email is one stream. You get a certain amount of emails that come from wherever. You might have filters. You get a certain stream from all of your social media. So you might have, based on the people you follow, the people you block, whatever else, you get a certain stream of information from all of the people from social media. You also, just in the real world, when you're walking down the street, you might see billboards. Those would be part of your information stream. And traditionally, up until now, it has largely been held off by gatekeepers. So if you want to learn about the news, there's gatekeepers. You have the, the Fox News or the CNN or the major news anchors that basically decide what gets to go into your information stream. Same thing with social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Based on their policies, they get to decide what information goes into your stream. And so there's all of these gatekeepers that basically are upstream of you that decide what sort of information you can pull from the collective into your own sphere of conscious awareness. I think the fundamental shift that is going to happen in this next stage of the Great Acceleration is removing all of those gatekeepers. So it will no longer be that there will be a few streams that have gates where the gatekeepers can control the information. Instead, it will be totally decentralized. So you yourself will be able to choose whatever information you want to pull and you will have full control to be your own gatekeeper. You can block whoever you want. You can boost the signal of whatever you want and you can decide for yourself what information you want to pull into your sphere of conscious awareness. So the next question you might have is, well, how does this happen? How do we create this decentralized future where I have total control over the information I want to pull into my conscious awareness? I think the fundamental pillar is decentralized cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. And the reason is that once you've solved the problem of decentralized, verifiable financial transactions, there is a lot you can do with that. And the reason the blockchain is such a game changer is because you don't need any counterparty or any entity to hold all the valuable information. Instead, all the valuable information is dispersed throughout the peer-to-peer -peer network. So whereas in the past with finance, 
you would need Wells Fargo to verify that you have a certain amount of funds in your account, that you want to transfer these funds to someone else, and that yes, you have now successfully transmitted those funds. That is the way finance has traditionally been set up. And it gives tremendous power to these organizations like the big banks and the Federal Reserve. And they become really important gatekeepers that are also in a way kind of siphoning off a lot of value from the network. Now contrast that with a decentralized peer-to-peer network where if anyone sends Ethereum to anyone else on the blockchain, anyone can look at those transactions publicly and see, oh yes, this account sent this amount to that person at that time. It's almost like creating a layer zero for the entire cybernetic collective where we can all agree on certain things that provides more trust and more efficiency throughout the system. So for instance, metadata is already widely available where anyone can check what time a tweet was sent, who it was sent by, who they tagged, uh, when that went out. And so in that sense, there are some truths that we can all know whether or not the content of the tweet itself is true. We can know whether someone did in fact say this thing in that time on that date. And that is really important. So when you think about any sort of manipulation that right now can be really damaging, if we had a layer of transparent, decentralized, verifiable truths that can be checked by any node on the network, that is a fundamental game changer that can set the stage for tremendous productivity and technological growth and progress. Now let's talk about the future scenarios. Let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that the great acceleration continues until it doesn't. And when you look at any biological system, any population, it's typical for it to increase exponentially and then decrease exponentially. So once you've used all of the resources in your area, your population will collapse. Uh, and in human history, this often leads to violent conflict, wars between nations. And so these are possibilities that we all need to consider. And it could happen in a number of ways, right? There could be nuclear war, there could be climate catastrophe, there could be super intelligent AI that goes haywire. There could be some sort of biological warfare or pandemic that's much worse than COVID. There could be autonomous weapons systems that go haywire. So whatever it may be, in a broad sense, it's quite possible that our population will increase and then there will be some cataclysmic event and it will decrease exponentially. So the worst case would be if we went totally extinct. And that seems somewhat unlikely given how many people are in all these different places around the planet and even in space and in Antarctica and beneath the sea, and also given how adaptable humans are. So it's unlikely we would go totally extinct, but that is the worst case scenario. The next worst case scenario would be a state of anarchy plus tyranny. So this is something where you have a, an oppressive state that maybe they make you pay taxes, they, they constantly are taking things from you, and they also don't protect you against the gangs of marauding uh, bad people that are going around. So this would be sort of like a children of men scenario where the government is corrupt and you also have to deal with all the elements of anarchy. It also kind of makes me think of San Francisco on a bad day where 
you have the state that taxes the hell out of you and will give you a parking ticket if you're just one inch outside of the parking space, but they don't even protect you when your house gets totally looted or when your car gets broken into. So it's like you get both of the bad sides, the bad sides of anarchy and the bad side of tyranny. The next worst case would just be straight up anarchy. So there's no tyrannical government, but you have to deal with all the bad elements of anarchy. This would be like a Mad Max scenario, right? You don't have to deal with a tyrannical government, but there's a lot of stuff you have to deal with, with just making sure you're safe as far as the other people and groups that are wandering around looking to take stuff from you and, and do bad things. The next worst, which is definitely better, is what people refer to as crypto anarchy. So imagine that same sort of Mad Max scenario, but now there is at least a layer of order on top of that through the blockchain. So you may have a totally anarchic society, but at least among people who have an internet connection and have a little bit of Ethereum or Bitcoin, they're able to transact, they're able to still get most of what they need for a civilized life. Now, of course, the best case scenario would be that we have crypto civilization, the best of both worlds. So let's talk a little bit about that. Best case scenario. A crypto civilization is one where the government is functioning well, society is functioning well, and there's an added layer of freedom provided by decentralized information and finance. That would mean that no one group is able to totally dominate and take control and oppress any other group. And by having this decentralized system, anyone would be beholden to what their actions are. So if I do something bad, everyone else will know about it and I'll be punished. So there is an incentive system built into this where information is publicly available. It's easy to verify what's true, what's not true. This would be a system where you have total freedom, as outlined in the book, the sovereign individual. So I love this concept of rather than being a sovereign state, you can be a sovereign individual. So you may not have to be beholden to the laws of the United States or Singapore or whatever country you might happen to live in. And instead, you can decide which government, which country is the best for you to live in. And then you can vote with your feet and move there. And it's just like any other product where you take the cost benefit analysis of what are the benefits of living in this place, living in California versus living in Texas versus living in, in Israel or wherever. And what are the costs of it? How much do they charge me in taxes? What is the air quality like? What are the other downsides of living there? And when you think about it, we've already achieved this to an extent where you can live an American-grade life in many places around the world. Uh, as a digital nomad, you can travel somewhere else and you still have fast internet, you still have good food and clean water, you still can log into your same email address, you can run your same business. Everything is pretty much the same when you use the tools of the internet. And especially if we have that added layer zero of decentralization, that would make it even harder for oppressive states to take what's not theirs. And so I think the next logical step after being a sovereign individual is to be a sovereign collective 
where there can be all of these sovereign individuals that band together in order to lobby governments to get a better sort of outcome. So you can think of like, for instance, Amazon basically had a contest of which city was going to give them the most perks and whichever city that was, that's where they would move their headquarters. You could imagine a similar sort of collective that bargains to have a better, uh, a better deal with wherever they want to move to, or wherever they want to live. So obviously there's a lot of challenges we're going to have to overcome and not everything is going to be perfect right away and there will be some tremendous inequality. But at least among the people who are able to achieve that level of sovereignty, I think it's going to be an incredible future where governments will necessarily have to become better and they'll have to offer a better value proposition in order to have the powerful and the value creating sovereign individuals want to move there. So in the best case scenario, the incentive system works out so that every state wants to get better in order to attract these sovereign individuals. And that sets the stage for real progress and real technological growth where we can actually achieve our dreams of extending longevity, colonizing the cosmos, and creating a society where there's more total freedom that people can have to do what they want, be who they want to be, and achieve fulfillment. Now let's talk about the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. For the most likely scenario, I want to start with a distinction. And that is the distinction between physical space and what's called geodesic space. So physical space, we're all familiar with. That's who your neighbors are, who your countrymen are, who's on the other side of the planet. It's based on physical distances. Geodesic space is based on psychological distances or how close you are to other nodes on the network. So you may think about your best friends or your closest family members. They may live all over the world. You may have good friends from college that live in New York or Chicago or some live in London. You may have family members that live in Ireland or Canada. And so when you think about who is closest to you on a psychological level, it's not necessarily the same as who's closest to you on a physical geographic level. And nowadays, oftentimes people live in high-rise apartment buildings and they don't even know the person who lives 10 feet away from them. They wouldn't even recognize them if they saw them on the street. So I think this is an important distinction. And what I would say is the most likely scenario is that the world starts to reshuffle and reorganize itself more based on geodesic distances rather than physical distances. Another trend that I think is really useful when thinking about the future is this notion of bundling and unbundling. And there's this famous quote that says that every business is either unbundling or rebundling something that people already want. So one example would be, for instance, in the music space, there used to be all these physical CDs that then got unbundled into MP3s that you could download individually. But then over time, that gave way to rebundling them into streaming services like Spotify. And in a similar way, you can think of with movies, how you unbundled all of these physical uh, VHSs and DVDs into downloadable digital MP4s, and then you rebundled them into streaming services like, like Netflix. And so, so many of 
the new businesses that are created are basically unbundling what was happening in the previous tech paradigm and rebundling it based on this new tech paradigm. So I think what's going to happen over the next 10 years is we're going to see a lot of these traditional centralized media and centralized tech companies be unbundled into their more decentralized raw units. And then eventually those will be rebundled into something new. So take social media, for instance. Right now, you have to update your social media on all these different networks. You got to change your profile on all these networks. It's kind of a lot to keep tabs on. Instead, imagine if everyone just had their own secure blog on the blockchain. And so I can just put out whatever I'm thinking on a given day. And then that goes into whatever the decentralized version of Twitter is, the decentralized version of Facebook, decentralized version of Instagram. So it kind of becomes, you know, again, like this layer zero where everyone can put out the raw data that's important to them and the raw feeds of information. And then other decentralized apps can basically vacuum up that information, organize it in different ways. And that would just create a decentralized future of what people already want, which creates greater efficiency, greater levels of trust. You can verify what's being said. You can charge your fans for different amounts and not have to worry about giving a bunch of that to the platform or to the government in the form of taxes. So I think this notion of unbundling and rebundling is one of the most important trends to keep an eye on. And I have no doubt that there's a lot of unbundling and rebundling that'll occur in the coming years. In summary, I just would like to say that I have never felt so optimistic about the future as I feel right now. When you see skeptics like Peter Thiel and Brett Weinstein saying that they feel optimistic and they feel that we are achieving real progress and that this is the true beginning of the 21st century, you should pay attention to that. So I would say there's never been a better time to start a business, to look at the trends that are ahead, to capitalize on these changes, and to really bring about a better future. And I think the biggest mistake any of us can make is to fight these trends because they are necessarily going to happen. And when you think about the great acceleration, either we strive towards the stars and longevity and the grand future that awaits us, or eventually we revert to a more primitive time. So I'm a futurist. I want to strive towards creating a better future and always creating more progress. And I hope you do too. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.
If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at hencethefuture. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.